Take your Bible, turn to Revelation 8 and 9. I'm going to do something a little differently this Sunday than I have done in other Sundays. It's not something I prefer to do it this way, but I'm preaching a chapter and a half. In preaching a chapter and a half that I'm assuming you do not know very well. Um, and the part that you do know, I'm assuming you know probably maybe through, we'll say, more dubious uh, kind of readings of it. Uh, so instead of reading the whole thing at the beginning and then having to rush to the explanation, I'm going to explain it and read it as we go. Uh, so I'm just going to pray now and then jump into the sermon and read it along as we get through the various parts. Let's ask God's blessing. Now, Father, we thank you for your word, which is always true for you are always true. You explain Christ. He is the truth. <laughs> thank you. We pray that we would now, even with our uh, frail and feeble minds, understand your truth. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I think pretty much every study ever uh, you know, commenced on looking at retirement has come back and proven kind of basically all Americans, everybody, nobody ever invests enough until it's kind of too late. They look around and they say, well, you know, the vast majority of, Mer- of Americans enter into retirement without enough savings. And even in the PCA, this is true. Most pastors don't ever make enough uh, savings along the way. And our denomination has started asking those kind of questions. How can we help pastors uh, in the long run so that when they retire, they're better off and such? And uh, it's interesting that kind of what they're doing now is starting to rewind and go, okay, the issue is not how do we fix that now that, you know, pastors are retired and they don't have enough income. Okay, let's back up. Why is it that pastors aren't saving enough or regular Americans aren't saving enough? Why isn't? Why, why are we not doing that? And it's interesting that pretty much one answer is kind of the universal answer that we're hearing most often everywhere, which is people don't see the importance until too late. I mean, they understand that it's a reality. They understand, oh, I'm supposed to be saving at, you know, 25, and I mean, money's tight, and I don't want to spend it now. I need to spend it on other things, you know, formula for the baby is important, and then, you know, you retire, and you get out, and you're like, ooh, I should have been saving at 25. At the time you're supposed to be acting on it, you're not able to at least see the value of it. This is, I suspect, quite often the case when we interact with the truth of God's judgment as well. Most people, most American Christian types would, I think, intellectually say, well, yes, I know that God's going to judge the world. and I know that God's going to judge the wicked. I know that uh, we have, you know, in some way going to appear before the, the God's throne at the end of time. I, I conceptually get all those things. But I've got time. I mean, I don't have to worry about it now. I mean, I, I'm, t- I'm 25. Now's not the time to worry about those things. Now's the time to worry about the things that I'm supposed to be occupied with at 25. And I suspect that for your average American type, the reality of God's judgment is not that much different than the reality of retirement. Where it's too little too late. 
It's people wait until it's too late, too far down the road to begin to wrestle with the reality of God's judgment. Revelation chapters 8 and 9 are a gruesome and gripping description of God's wrath. Now, where we are in the book, again, remembering the best way to kind of think of this book is they're like chain links that are interconnected. The story's not kind of one that flows chronologically from start to end. If you try to read the book of Revelation as one continuous chronology, one continuous story, it's going to be very confusing. If you understand it, you know, as kind of little vignettes, it makes a bit more sense. Uh, Where we've been kind of along the way is in chapters 6 and 7 into the beginning of 8, we've had one reoccurring theme kind of show up over and over in connection with God's judgment. And it is the prayers of God's people for that judgment. In the beginning of 8 here, we've seen even the angel bringing a golden censer filled with incense to the Lord, bringing the prayers of the saints to God himself, which he is pleased to answer. From chapter 6, we found that the content of the prayers of these saints is for God's judgment on the wicked. Again, we've wrestled through that over the last several weeks, even as how much do we even pray that? And when we pray that, are we praying it to be petty because that person's irritated us, right? Ah, That guy cut me off in traffic. God's judgment on that person versus, Lord, glorify yourself, vindicate your name. Here as we get into verse 6 of Revelation chapter 8 into chapter 9, we now change kind of to the next vignette. The next link in the chain where we've moved from the seven seals to the seven trumpets. It's the same concept. In fact, actually, it follows even the same pattern. Four, kind of two and one, really, if we're going to look at it. Four trumpets, two trumpets, one trumpet, laying out a very specific pattern. Now, before we dive in, I'm going to kind of challenge us to think kind of two ways as we go about this. One is to remember this is God's wrath poured out on creation on unbelievers specifically. Uh, But it's, again, direct response to the prayers of God's people, one. And two, it comes in two phases, as we see in this section. The first six trumpet blasts deal with the right now. And the seventh, which we're not going to talk about today, but we'll talk about in the future, will come at the end of time. So chapters 8 and 9 are going to be dealing with the here and now. So, first thing to kind of notice as we go around this is, um, again, we talk about with the the idea of uh, retirement, how one of our main struggles is to understand the value of it right now. And I think probably because we don't have kind of any real tangible way to, to understand that. Like when retired folks are understanding what it means to live on a fixed income and how they have to manage their budget and how tight it is, they understand on a daily basis or weekly basis or monthly basis kind of an emotional idea of how important retirement is. But now for all of the ones who are not retired and younger, there's kind of no kind of daily physical reminder that retirement is happening. 
So it's easy to kind of put it off indefinitely. It's easy to make it into some sort of kind of concept out there. Likewise, with God's judgment, it's easy to understand the reality of it when you're in the middle of it. But when life is good, it's easy to kind of kick the can down the road and to say, well, it's some nebulous thing that I never have to engage. In the first four kind of trumpet blasts, God is going to give us a a kind of visual representation of his judgment and in such a way as to help us be reminded constantly that his wrath is going to be poured out on creation. All right, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Okay, great. Uh, Verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. So you have this kind of gruesome description, fanciful description of what we would kind of call big picture, large scale Um, natural disasters, kind of gone superpowered, so to speak, Uh, gone really great. What's happening here? Well, the first trumpet's blown, fire happens, hail happens, just the natural destruction of the created world. And to give us a a fuller picture of how bad of a hailstorm this is, it's mixed with blood. Again, natural kind of consequence if it's a really gruesome Natural disaster. If you have been following the news in Australia uh, over the last month, they had pretty spectacular weather. Remember, they had that uh, wonderful, bad drought followed by those terrible fires. And then when the fires kind of finally started to get put out, you know, it started raining. If you stopped paying attention to the news after that, you would have missed the real gem of it, which is that immediately following when the rains hit, it brought hailstorms with it where they had two to three inches of hail sitting on the ground. You could not see the dirt. You could not see like the animals that survived the fire were killed by the hail because there was nothing to hide from it. And we're talking huge, you know, baseball size hail coming from the storm. You know, (laughs) I saw a number of kind of folks joking and saying, God's getting his warm up for the apocalypse in Australia right now. You're like, well, Actually, you're not wrong. That's not bad theology. That's exactly what's being described here in the first trumpet blast is the Lord pouring out natural disasters on the land to showcase, look, oh, by the way, judgment is not something far off. Judgment's not something nebulous that's never going to happen. It's something real. It's something tangible. It's something that we can understand for those that have grown up in this area. Ryan and I have joked about this many, many times. Everything in this area is kind of measured as pre or post Hugo. You could tell when somebody came to Charlotte when they moved to the area by whether or not they know Hugo and how they know it from experience or how they know it from kind of other people's experience. You know, we were without power for two weeks, spent the entire time at my fifth grade teacher's uh, house because she was the only one that had electricity. And uh, the guy, you know, two houses down from us almost got his leg cut off with a chainsaw when a tree snapped back on him and the chainsaw kicked. And providentially, the road was just open enough to get him to the hospital so he didn't bleed to death. You know? For us, it's, it's a landmark experience where the destruction of the world became tangible. You know, to wake up in the morning and to see the tree leaning against my bedroom window that if it had snapped just a little bit lower would have come in on my bed and that would have been it. Very tangible. 
The second uh, trumpet blast kind of intensifies it to take it from the realm of natural disaster that kind of everybody's going to experience to the realm of natural disaster that is unique and brilliant and bad. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. And commentators argue on this, pretty much they argue on everything in the book. I, I think what's being described here is probably a very vivid and gripping description of what John himself and others in the area had experienced. This is being written in 95, 96 uh, AD. If you know your world history from that time, one, well, geography, you know that this is kind of the uh, European ring of fire. This is one of the most common places to have earthquakes and to have massive volcanoes. And in fact, one of the largest and most dead, like fatal volcano blasts in human history was 17 years earlier, just down, you know, kind of across the sea uh, at a place called Pompeii. Mount Vesuvius blew 79 AD, like I said, about 17 years before, and a town was more or less vaporized. For those that saw it providentially, again, providentially in the news this last week, scientists are still beginning to kind of digest what happened. They found a new set of bodies from Pompeii, and they're kind of marveling at what has happened because they were so instantaneously burned at about 1,000 degrees, but then super cooled immediately following. It turned the brains of the corpses to glass. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it means that they burned, the scientists figured they burned it somewhere between 900 and 968 degrees Fahrenheit in order to vaporize the fat and then were super cooled immediately so that the brains would then harden into glass. Wow. Wow. That, that it, wow, right? That is the type of destruction I really don't ever want to be a part of. That's the type of destruction I want to know nothing of. That's terrible. But yet, John's writing to a group of people that would remember that. How many of us remember Hugo? And that's further back in time than Pompeii was for John and his audience. Much further back in time. Twice as far, actually, almost. An amazing sort of interaction here. Third angel blows his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell uh, on a third of the rivers and the springs of water and the name of the star is Wormwood. The third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died because of the water because it had been made bitter. Here I think what's being described is a meteorite that obviously comes out of the sky, hits the land, vaporizes the soil, it falls on the ground and turns the water bitter. Just random interesting things. The word wormwood there is the word that becomes absinthe. It's absinthe. Uh, It's the actual uh, spice that's used to make absinthe, where you turn regular kind of grain alcohol into that bitter um, uh, green liquid that is illegal in most of the world now. Uh, not inherently poisonous in its own right, poisonous in, I guess, large enough quantities or over long enough periods of time. I think what's being described here, again, you see the meteorite come in, it hits, it, it creates this kind of, you know, dust cloud that comes up as the dust settles on the land. It makes the water foul. You think, oh, well, we never see those sorts of things happen. Well, actually, again, 
providentially, we're, we're getting to actually, as we now have kind of greater geological record and scientists are being brilliant, we're seeing this, we found a number of places actually where this has happened and happened in such large scale that the entire world would have known about it. In the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, you know, that part of Mexico, right, where the Yucatan Peninsula comes in, most likely a meteorite, I, I suspect, connected to the flood that was so great that it probably knocked out a substantial portion of life uh, connected to the flood. Again, providentially, in the last week, scientists have announced they found another one in Laos, where a meteorite a mile and a quarter wide hit in Laos and hit with enough force to leave a crater more or less the size of Rhode Island. Uh, and hit with enough force to take the dirt of Laos to crystallize it, to blow it into the atmosphere and cover 10% of Earth. So that, you know, in 10% of planet Earth, you can go and find black glass crystals that came from a vaporized meteorite in Laos. How cool is that? The fourth, again, natural disaster described in spectacular fashion. The angel blows his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, a third of the day uh, might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Again, kind of putting uh, God's judgment directly into the context of the natural order. I think there's an important takeaway that needs to be pulled from this section 6 through 12 is to say, look, part of why we don't save for retirement is because we don't have that constant, tangible reminder that it's such a big deal. Part of why we don't interact with God's judgment very often in our minds is because we don't have that tangible reminder that it's a big deal. And part of what's happening here is God is teaching us through John, through this vision, that Every single natural disaster is a reminder of God's wrath. Every single natural disaster is a reminder. I I remember a Christian musician, uh, I'm at this point now, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, in uh, one of his songs made the great point that he, he loved getting colds because even the word would teach you a lesson. See, you're old and you're going to die. If a cold can make you feel so bad, what's the rest of life like? That's a great question. One of those are going, you know, I get a man cold. I get whiny. I get frustrated. I get to be a mess, right? The wife wants to send me into my office and not be around because I'm maybe a little bit of a pest. But again, what a reminder, And if you actually begin to think about creation from this perspective, we actually have these tiny portraits of the judgment of God all around us all of the time. When Chad goes to physical therapy this week and they have to stretch his new ACL, do you think he's going to understand in some tiny little fashion the judgment of God? Depending on how good of a job they do, he might say something about it while they're doing it. (laughs) But it's intriguing, actually, why we got, well, I never think about it that way. 
I mean, when I read about fires in Australia or hail in Australia or famine in Central Africa or whatever's happening in whatever part of the world, now that I have the internet and I can hear about everywhere all of the time, I never think about those things. And that's actually the exact point of the Bible here is that you don't think about those things and pagans don't think about those things and nobody thinks about those things until it's too late to be thinking about those things. The time to think about them is now, which is why we're given all of these object lessons around us all of the time. And a friend who had a very quirky baseball coach years and years ago, I'm, he might be in heaven now, I don't know, I never met the man, but he was famous because uh, down in the southern part of the state when he would show up for baseball practice and it was a million degrees, he regularly would show up in his truck, drive up to practice with the windows up, the heat blasting 100% and would get out of his truck in a parka and pants. And his players would be like, Coach, you're going to have a stroke and die. What are you doing? And he'd just say, guys, that deep accent, I know hell is bad, and I have to make sure I don't forget about that now. It's going to be bad. You better not forget about that now. He evangelized his baseball team by showing up being weird, running the heat when it's 105 degrees outside. In South Carolina. Part of what we do with God's wrath is we put our fingers in our ears and we ignore all of the signs around us. All of the reminders, the constant reminders of God's wrath. We're like, la, la, la. And and like we can't acknowledge that, no, this is our experience. We know it. And sometimes it just gets bad enough that people try to be, you know, snarky and make comments like, well, it looks like God's out to get Australia. It's like, well, yes, he is. He's out to get all of creation because creation has rebelled against him. Meanwhile, that's pretty bad. I don't like this. This I don't like this chapter. This is pretty bad. Well, verse 13 is, mm, we'll say a transition. Then John looked, I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. Again, recognizing this is, you know, not literal in the most direct of fashions. Eagles don't normally talk, but okay. Eagles crying with a loud voice, flying directly overhead and screaming to everyone. Whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets and that the three angels are about to blow. So what does the eagle say as it flies overhead? (laughs) Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. That was the warm-up. And you're like, "Mm, yeah. Uh, Okay. Right? Massive storms and hail and fire and bodies being burned and volcanoes blowing into the sea, brains being turned to glass, meteorites nuking the entire world, contributing to the death of, you know, millions of species. Great. That's the warm-up. We haven't even gotten to the problem yet. This is the warm-up act. When you go to see a great concert and a great band is about to come on and they had some wretched warm-up act play, it's terrible. And you're like, why do they even have them opening for them? That's what the first four. 
Chapter 9, it starts, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft, and then from the smoke came locusts, well, I'll just stop there. Fifth angel blows his trumpet, and what happens? Well, the Lord authorizes the devil to begin his evil efforts on the earth. He's described as the star fallen from heaven to earth here. He is in some fashion authorized to uh, begin his evil ministry. Again, think back to the beginning of Job. We have that great interchange between God and the devil, where the devil is even asking permission to destroy Job. Here, the Lord is giving permission to the devil to begin to destroy the world. You think, wow, if the natural disasters were bad, here the Lord has authorized the devil to begin his efforts, and he's worse. If you watched any of the videos from Australia, you think something can be worse than this? Yes. The devil himself uh, being turned loose on those that oppose the Lord. Uh, then not only does he come by himself, not only does he have his efforts, no, he brings with him a a horde of minions impacting and interacting with creation in a way that we don't fully understand. Verse 3, then from the smoke came the locusts on the earth. Now, here what John is doing is he's taking Joel chapter 1 that we already read. Joel is describing an actual locust invasion. John is riffing on the idea and taking the description of the locust invasion and saying we're having another invasion inside creation, only it's not locusts this time. It's the devil and all of his demons, all of his evil angels working together inside creation. Uh... They were given, this is half of verse 3, they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth, the the power to make men miserable, though probably not to kill. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, uh, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Interesting, what is their authority? Who is in charge of them? Well, even God is the one limiting them. And you have this kind of running description of people in the book of Revelation is in two categories. Those that have the mark of God's enemies and those that have the mark of God. There are two categories. And again, uh, you know, I remember as a kid hearing my youth pastor talk and one of the things that kind of helped start me thinking would he would constantly challenge us to say, remember, for those of you that are sitting on the fence, there is no fence. For those of you that are trying to play like Switzerland, to to play neutral territory, there is no neutral territory. In the book of Revelation, there are two categories of people. Those that have the mark of God and those that have the mark of his enemy. That's it. There's no third. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months for a really long time, uh, but not allowed to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone that makes them really ill, but they don't die. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. This is how brilliant the devil and his demons are at harassing, 
pestering and persecuting God's, not his people, but his creation, his humans that do not belong to him. They are spectacularly effective at accomplishing their task. They're so good at it. And again, this is the intriguing thing. In the first four, you have the natural disasters that are done in such a way they're obvious and they're external to the person. Here, it's amazing. What happens is the demons are let loose and they begin to persecute God's creatures. They begin to persecute humans, the unregenerate. And they do such a good job that these people begin to hate their lives so much they want to end them but in many cases aren't even able to die. You think, oh man, that sounds terrible. I mean, I can't believe anything like that would exist today. Have you read any report about the condition of America today? Tom makes this point regularly in Sunday school, but you see the life expectancy of Americans is is decreasing, it's shortening. Why? Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, And suicide are so high, the life expectancy of Americans is dropping. Talking with others of having to wrestle through the problems of suicide, not just now at like your, it's always been a problem for men in their 40s, but now we're starting to see it hit into high school and hit into middle school. Other places you're going, wow. Well, because they're good at what they do. They're good at what they do. And the the amazing thing on this one, again, is we say we see the signs of this all around us. But what do people do? La, la, la. Put, Put our fingers in our ears and ignore all of the markers of what they're doing. God tells us what they do. They will persecute people to such a point they will want to die and go, look at our land. People want to die everywhere. Well, how powerful are these forces of darkness? Well, verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. They're they're brilliant at what they do. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair. They they have the ability not just to be odious at the beginning, right? Uh, When they show up, it's not one of those things where you're immediately like, ah! and run away, they have the ability to, to weave those brilliant lies that people want to listen to. They seem so pleasing on the surface. Uh, they have teeth like lion's teeth, again, referencing Joel chapter 1. They have breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions at great power. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, the devil. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, he is called Apollyon. He's the destroyer, the destroyer of worlds. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are to come. Oh, great. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's lovely. The devil's here. His demons are here. They're destroying people all around. Oh, great. Lovely. We're not done yet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel of the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So, oh, now it's worse. Oh, now it's worse. Previously, we just had generic demons at work. Now we have specialists. 
So the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. They were effective. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That is a lot of soldiers. And you think about the time in the world in which this is being written, uh, you know, talking about that many mounted troops, that many, I mean, that's more, that's almost as many horses as Genghis Khan had in his entire, uh, entire empire all being mounted in one bout. This is a spectacularly large number. Um, uh, verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, color fire, sapphire, and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Oh, that's terrifying. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Mm, I don't like that either. And by uh, these three plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with head and by means of them they wound it. What's happening here? You know, it sounds bizarre. Well, not as much, I think, is probably what's being uh, hinted at through the vision is that these, uh, these forces of evil uh, do not always fight directly. But I would contend actually more often than not probably fight indirectly and use other things to accomplish their evil efforts. And here what you have being described as what? What does that sound like? Well, that's warfare. This is combat. This is war that's being described. And it's interesting that when it talks about, look, the devil is cut loose. He's given all of his demons. And what's the byproduct of what they produce in the world is it is war. Everywhere there is war. And again, we say, well, I mean, that doesn't describe today. Oh, we might not have war. Do you read the news? What year was the last time we did not have a war running in this world? I don't know. There have been several hundred years. I don't know, a thousand years? I don't know. I mean, there's always war running somewhere. Somebody's always killing someone else. They're not always as big in scope as World War I and World War II. But there's war everywhere. And again, it, it, it comes back to remind us that what's happening in this world is bigger than simply what we're looking at in front of us. This is one of the great lies that our current culture tells us in the guise of science. Science tells us that we can know anything because we can see or smell or taste or touch everything. We can know anything because we can observe everything. And the problem is, is what we're seeing here in these two chapters is God is saying in the first part, look, you are observing it in creation, but you're not listening. And in the second part, he's saying, but guess what? That's not all of the story. There's something much worse happening. Paul builds on this at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, doesn't he? For we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against powers principalities, the forces of darkness in this present world. That's what's happening here is the forces of darkness are in plentiful influence around us. And again, we plug our ears. 
put our fingers in our ears to work hard to not listen to the reality of the destruction of the world around us. Verse 20 goes on to explain how the unbeliever responds to all of this. The rest of mankind, the unbeliever, those who were not killed by these plagues, the ones who were not given the mark of God, well, they did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They don't listen. And I'd make just a couple of observations on the text that I think are important for us to to pay attention to. One is these realities are true today. They've always been true, certainly since the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Christ. But these describe the world in which we live. And first and foremost, we need to be grateful because for many of us, this seems far off. And I would suggest that if this description seems far off from us, That is the greater reminder of God's mercy than anything else you're going to get tangibly. Because for most of human existence, this is the absolute description of how they've lived. And you think about it, they didn't have tsunami warning systems. They didn't have tornado warning systems. They didn't have painkillers when they went to the dentist didn't have surgeons who could replace parts of the body when they break, didn't have treatments for cancer, didn't have uh, any sort of help for if you had the flu. You read so much of the ancient writings, and it's amazing how much they describe themselves as being captives to the wind and the rain, captives to the whims of the gods of the earth. And you're like, well, no, 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 it's because you're missing it. That, that's not how the world works. God is in charge of all of it, and his wrath is being poured out now. It's just being poured out in a small fashion until the last day. One, so we should be grateful that for some of us, this doesn't, it's not an understanding that we kind of deal with all of the time. Secondly, is we do need to start tuning our ears to pay a little bit better attention to it. Do a better job of listening so that as we watch the news, we're paying attention to the fact that, look, this is true. God is pouring out his wrath and we need to be prepared for that. To be reminded of that. Again, how is your life going to be different if you have the wrath of God on the front of your mind? I promise you it will only make your life better, not worse. Better because it will add a wholesome and healthy sense of priority. A wholesome and healthy understanding of what's important and what needs to be done and what can fall by the wayside. Third, I would note that again, to be reminded, the world that we live in is filled with demons who are at work. We forget that, don't we? 
I mean, here in the West, where everything is so scientific and so safe, we forget that, I mean, think about how many of our industries have to be (laughs) in some way pushed and influenced by demonic activity. You cannot tell me that the internet has not been shaped by them. I'm sorry. I refuse to believe that. The new and awful ways that we think of terrible things. The internal and psychological torment that so many people go through today to remember that the demons are at work. But I would suggest the biggest, and this is the most important takeaway out of all of this, is the intriguing thing is that God's wrath is poured out in a way in these two chapters that all of creation gets to notice. The devil himself is freed to work. He's doing that today. The demons are freed to work. They're doing that today. Creation itself is in some way kind of being hinted at being unmade. We've seen that happening in Australia and other places. And even that is not powerful enough to open the eyes and the ears and the hearts of mankind. Which, if we are Christians, should give us a greater sense of wonder and joy and delight at the person of Christ Jesus. That what Mount Vesuvius couldn't do to show people, to wake them up to the life to come, King Jesus does do. What the destruction of the world can't do to wake people up to the life to come, King Jesus does do. He comes in and changes hearts and changes minds. It should, as we think about this tremendous wrath being poured out in creation, should give us a greater sense of wonder that this is what King Jesus conquered for me. It also makes so much sense that when the scriptures say he's the only, excuse me, the only way to heaven, even God's wrath doesn't wake people up. Only Jesus does that. Which is why we need to be busy about talking about Jesus. Talking about the way, the truth, and the life. Talking about the only path to heaven. Talking about the one who is victorious over all of these things. Talking about the one whose mark when placed upon the people of God, they are safe forever. Preoccupied with praising the Lord Christ. May it be that we do that today. This evening, even into the week, into the life to come, until the Lord Jesus either returns or take us home, would we be those people of praise? Let's pray even now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus is bigger than even our hard hearts. Which is impressive because our hearts are very hard. And we pray that, O oh Lord, he would work in us even now. For Christ's sake, amen.